I'm assuming you would agree with me if I say we live in difficult times. If you pay attention at all to the news, or you read blogs on the internet, or read books, or whatever it is where you get your information from, or just talking to people, it's pretty obvious we live, particularly when I say we, I mean Christians in this world live in difficult times. We have brothers and sisters in far-off places like Middle East or in places like Nigeria, Africa, or our brothers and sisters in places like North Korea, for example. Just some of these are some of the worst places that come to my mind where our brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering horrible persecution. Many martyrs have gone to heaven for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so... It's important that we ask this question and answer this question, how can we continue to have faith in these very difficult times? And what does it mean to have Christian faith in faithless times like the ones we live in? We live in faithless times. Even here in New Zealand, where we're not having people beheaded for their faith, but it's, it's like we're slowly being suffocated to death. This world is pressing us into its mold. And we're becoming more and more anti-God, more non-religious. Every census we have, the non-religious crowd in New Zealand grows and grows. And You even look at Christians and talk to other Christians, you find in many ways they're becoming practical atheists. That's the times we live in. We live in faithless Times And so the book of Jude is very helpful to us. It's a book that we need to go to. We need to understand it will help us during these faithless times. So let's answer the question, first of all, who is Jude? Well, if you look in Jude, you see his name comes as the very first word in this book. And he describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. That's an interesting description because... If you know anything about Jude, he was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He was born of Mary. And no, she is not a perpetual virgin. (laughs) Mary had children, and Jude was one of them. It's interesting, though, if you know about Jude, he didn't actually come to Christ until after Jesus' resurrection. Here he is, he lived with Jesus Christ, but he did not believe in him until after the resurrection. He is the brother, half-brother of Jesus. As far as we know, it's not for sure. There's a lot of speculation on when Jude wrote, but it was probably during the late 60s. He doesn't mention the fall of Jerusalem, so that's why there is much speculation. It was probably just before the fall of Jerusalem. Jude's helpful in these faithless times. He's Jude, in many ways, also lived in faithless times, and like some of these other general epistles, he had to deal with false teaching and false teachers. So let's see what Jude has to say. Let's start reading in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, 
I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroying by all that they, like unreasonable animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perish in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. 
Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So we're going to first look what Jude says about the characteristics of a faithless life. By faithless life, we mean these false teachers. Then we're going to look at what does a faith-filled life look like? What, someone who is faithful to God, what does that look like according to Jude? And then finally we're going to look at what answers Jude provides to several of the most asked questions about faith. So first of all, let's look at what are the characteristics of a faithless life? And hopefully these don't characterize you. And if they do, then, my friend, there is hope. There is hope in Jesus Christ. But let's look at what does a faithless life look like according to this Holy Spirit-inspired book. Well, first of all, a faithless life lives immorally. Lives immorally, according to verse 4. It says certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Notice that word, pervert. That's a key word in that verse. They are are perverting, and notice what they're perverting, by the way. They're perverting God's grace. So what they're doing is they're that grace is changed into license. These are the, the people who, who say, you can just do whatever you want. It, it's the old issue that Paul addressed in Romans chapter 6. Can I go and, 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 and sin so God's grace will, will help me and, and cover my sin? Can I just sin all I want because God's grace is sufficient? James says No. If you look at verse 8, he, he talks about their immoral lives. In verse 8, he says, in, in like manner, these people that are relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Look at verse 10. They blaspheme all they do not understand, and they destroy by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Anyway, it goes on. He just, he just talks about their immoral lives, these False teachers live brutal lives as if they're just animals, unreasoning animals. Well, people today often assume, many people assume that whatever I naturally desire has to be a good thing. It's like they live out the Nike slogan, just do it. Right? It, it, and they live out the whole, uh, it's, it's like the theology of Disney. You know Disney has a theology follow your heart, right? Just watch the Disney movies. It's, it's almost, almost every single movie. That's what it's all about. That's their worldview. Follow your heart. Well, Jude says, following your natural desires is not a good thing. Jude says it's a bad thing. 
These false teachers might teach a Christian can live however he or she wants, and you can remain in the church in good standing, and that a Christian can give full expression to their natural desires, and you kind of just chalk that up to grace. Jude says, that's wrong. A faithless life lives immorally, but in verse 4, Jude also says a faithless life denies the truth. It denies the truth because they're denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4 says. So impure lives are actually the product of that first one. They're, They're the product of faithlessness. It's a product of not having faith and denying the truth. If you read on, like in verse 11, for example, it says, Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain, and they abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. A lot of examples there of faithlessness. So like Cain and Balaam and Korah, these men have lifted themselves up to to a place that they should not have been. They've lifted themselves against God's people. They lifted themselves up against God's truth and even against God himself, and they suffered the consequences for that. They, They boast only of themselves. So where does this ungodliness come from? Well, ungodly lives stem from a denial of God's truth. They don't understand God's truth. Jude Jude tells us that. Moral faithlessness exposes their spiritual faithlessness. In other words, they're just living out what's inside them. It's like the book of Proverbs says, it's the wellspring of life comes from within inside us. So these false, false teachers not only teach that a Christian can live however he wants to live, but they were also teaching you could just believe whatever you want and it doesn't really matter and you can still be a Christian and you can belong to the church. You don't have to believe the fundamentals of the faith to be a Christian. Sound familiar? Just watch the television. Go to the Christian bookstore. You'll, you'll, you'll see false teachers everywhere who are teaching that sort of rubbish. Well, to this, Jude says, no, you can't just live however you want. You can't just believe whatever you want and still be a Christian. Clearly, what you believe affects how you live, right? Uh, You've heard me say that before, I hope, anyway. Theology is what drives your methodology. Theology drives your methodology. So if you look at people and what they're doing, then it shows you what they actually believe. It shows you what their theology, what their doctrine is. Because they're just living that out. And that's why the Bible is, is so in, encouraging us to know what is sound doctrine. Well, there's two points of what a faithless life looks at, what it, what it looks like. But let's look at a third one here. We see a faithless life leads to terrible consequences. Oh, it might look good on the outside to some people, but it has really bad consequences. The first result is a wasted life. A wasted life. In other words, it's unproductive. It's unfruitful. Look at verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. They're shepherds 
feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in autumn twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, their wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So it's a wasted life. Notice verse 12 talks about these love feasts. If you're wondering, what is that? Well, a love feast was basically a combination of what you might think of a communion service, but kind of joining that with potluck. Imagine a communion service and potluck joined together. That's kind of the idea. Remembering Christ's work has always been a focal point of the Christian church and has been even since the first century. But yet these false teachers are dangerous obstacles to the church's fellowship. You say, why a dangerous obstacle? Well, notice the Bible compares these false teachers to hidden reefs. They're hidden reefs among us. I guess that's kind of another way of saying they're wolves in sheep's clothing, right? A hidden reef can be a dangerous thing. We've seen examples of that. Ships have sunk recently in New Zealand when they hit a reef. It's dangerous. I've experienced this myself. I went fishing with a friend one time up in, up in Northland, and we had gone out during high tide, and we, we crossed over the bar just fine. And by a bar, I don't mean the, don't think of a pub kind of a bar, but I mean a sandbar, okay? Right? <clears throat> so we went over the sandbar out to go fishing. We caught some snapper and so forth, and we came... Then we were coming back at at nighttime. It was all dark. It was now low tide. Here we are. We're going along, you know, on our little boat, and we hit the sandbar. It was winter time. I wasn't prepared. I didn't have a life jacket on. I didn't have warm clothes on, and so we're stuck on the sandbar. My friends quickly, you know, they say, "Quick, let's get out of the boat. We got to get this boat off. The waves are just pounding us." As we're stuck on the sandbar, we've got to hurry, get the boat off, move it around a place so we can get through there safely. The water was freezing cold. and I, it, it, it was actually quite scary because when the waves would come and pound the boat, I'm holding onto the boat and the boat's just jerking me off the ground way up into the air, just then slamming me back down. I thought the boat was going to crush me. Well, eventually we got off, but... Uh, I was in the beginning stages of hypothermia. And I went home and got in the bathtub with hot water, and I'm just uh, I'm shaking uncontrollably. I'm sitting in hot water, and I still can't warm up. It was so freezing cold. That hidden reef, that hidden reef was a dangerous thing. It's dangerous. It, it just hides under the surface, but you know, it's, it's hard to see. It's, it's like false teachers in the church. They come in amongst us, but they, they're a dangerous thing. They affect the fellowship. They try to pervert the doctrine, and they live immoral lives. Jude uses several images here to describe these false teachers. Did you notice he uses shepherds, clouds, trees, waves, and stars? In and of themselves, those are all pleasant things, right? Hopefully you have good images of those sort of things, but... Notice what Jude does. He takes these lovely images here and he uses them to expose their wasted lives. Good things, but they're wasted. 
they're all unproductive. Notice the shepherds aren't feeding the sheep, they're just feeding themselves. The clouds aren't bringing rain, the trees aren't producing fruit, and the, we, the waves weren't helpful either. Here's the point. Faithless life is impotent. A faithless life is a barren life. It actually serves no helpful purpose, just like a false teacher. It's a wasted life. There's a second terrible consequence of a faithless life, and that is punishment. Look at verse 13. We read at the end of verse 13, these wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude calls the false teachers wandering stars. They're awaiting this utter darkness. In other words, faithlessness results in punishment. And judging by their lives here, these men appear to think they're somehow not accountable to God, that no punishment awaits anybody. It's kind of like the modern-day universalist. You know what a universalist is? That's, uh, there, there's sadly too many people who believe this way, that, that think eventually all people go to heaven. There is no such thing as an eternal punishment. Well, Jude didn't believe that. Jesus didn't believe that. The apostles believed there was something called punishment. And Jude's quite clear here. Punishment is something that's real, and every, anybody who is forsaking the truth and just lives faithlessly will be punished. And, and like a good preacher, notice what Jude does here. Jude uses three illustrations in the text to make his point. If you, if you, don't, if you don't believe him, just look at his, his points here. Because he uses the Israelites who died in the wilderness. He talks about fallen angels, and he uses Sodom and Gomorrah as his third example of how God judges sin. So in verse 5, he, he talks about the, the wilderness wanderings. He mentions uh, the, these people uh, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The, or, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong verse. That's good verse, but wrong one. Verse 5, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So that's, that's the Israelites who who had come to the promised land, their faith was not in God, they were looking at their circumstances instead of God. There's giants in the land. There's no way we could conquer those people. Joshua and Caleb stood up and said, trust in the Lord. God's bigger than those giants. But the majority of the people didn't believe Joshua and Caleb, and so God destroyed that whole generation during the 40 years in the wilderness. Well, it goes on to give the other illustration about these fallen angels. Uh, it's, that's a hard one to interpret, but apparently, best I can tell, these, these fallen angels, these demons, had cohabited, um, had, had, had come inside men, if you will, and then they cohabited with women. And, God, and of course, God wasn't pleased with that. And so God has, has them reserved for a time when they will eventually, along with Satan, be cast into the lake of fire. And of course, you know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. The other example given in verse 7, it mentions Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. 
Notice God calls it an eternal fire. This is real, not temporary. It is a punishment. Now here's the point, my friend. Anybody, anyone who forsakes the truth will be punished. He uses three examples there for you. So if you live contrary to God's way, you will suffer punishment. So it's important for us to remember that God's judgment on sin is real. It is real. It's not something to be trifled with. Well, Jude doesn't just talk about a faithless life. Fortunately, he gives us some good news. It's not all bad news in Jude. So let's look at some characteristics of a faith-filled life. Or a faithful life, if you will. Number one is a faith-filled life contends for the faith. Jude gives his purpose for writing this little letter in verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And then in verse 4, he says this, that certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation when godly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So a faith-filled life, a faithful life to God is, is one, I hope this describes you, by the way, this is, you must contend for the faith. This is not an option, by the way. It's a command. Jude, by the way, he doesn't tell them to go and argue about obscure words. And I, and I say that because there's too many people who call themselves Christians. They want to just argue about obscure stuff, the non-essentials. And they really give a bad name to Christ and Christianity and the church. And too many churches have split over things like, you know, what color are we going to paint the church building are we going to have carpet or not? You know, all these sort of non-essential stuff. Right? Some people think, I'm contending for the faith. Right? I remember having these discussions when we lived in Hastings. Remember that, Lynn? Where we, uh, you know, what, are we, what, what carpet we're going to pick? Are we going to have curtains? You know, what color are the curtains going to be? And what color are we going to paint the outside of the building? We were, we're talking about all this stuff, right? Fortunately, we didn't have any church split going on in Hastings there. We were fairly unified. Things went, went pretty well. Because we, we recognize those are non-essential things. You're not contending for the faith when you want to argue over, am I going to have green paint or blue paint? It's a non-essential thing. You see that? You've got to determine what is an essential and what's a non-essential. We've talked about that before. Right? Jude is telling them to contend for the faith, not, of, not over obscure words, not over the color of paint and so forth. You say, well, what is the faith? Well, that's the truth primarily about who is the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. It's the gospel primarily, but it would also include those fundamental essentials of the faith. Now, please notice here, it's interesting, Jude says the faith doesn't change doesn't change. In fact, he says it's a once-for-all faith. That's the words he uses. It's once-for-all. And notice, who is it entrusted to? It's not entrusted to the Pope or the elders of the church. Notice, Jude says it's entrusted to you. 
It's entrusted to the saints. That's Christians. So the good news of the gospel doesn't change. It's something that's final. It's unchanging. It doesn't matter what the latest theological fashions are. It doesn't matter what the Pope says or you know, the Anglican Archbishop or whoever. It doesn't matter what they say. This, this truth doesn't change. There's a very interesting word in your text there. The word for contend sounds very similar to an English word we use called agonize. You ever heard the word, English word agonize? Well, you, you'll see it in the Greek text. There's a, it, it sounds like agonize. It's, in other words, here's the point. Contending for the faith is a strenuous athletic exercise. It's a, something strenuous. It's not easy. It's not for the armchair kind of a person, the couch potato. No, this, this, this is hard work. The word agonize, by the way, makes me think of athletes in the Iditarod. And at this point, my family's thinking, oh no, he wants to talk about the Iditarod. I'm, I'm passionate about the Iditarod. So let me show you some pictures here. If you're not familiar with the Iditarod, it's, it's a, a very long sled dog race that, that goes through the state of Alaska. It's an annual long distance race of over 1,000 miles or over 1,600 kilometers. So imagine, imagine doing this with very little sleep on the back of a sled, running with your dogs the whole length of New Zealand and trying to do that in nine days. All the while, it's freezing cold. You'll see some pictures. That's the, the Alaskan mountain range. You'll see, you'll see some pictures here. One, one musher. The musher is the guy in the back of the sled, in case you're wondering. So usually they start with 16 dogs. The object is you want to be, you want to be the first to the finish line, of course. And, and so these teams are generally racing through blizzards, causing whiteout conditions. Hamish will go through some of these pictures here for you. But uh, you got sub-zero temperatures, gale force winds, which, of course, creates really freezing temperatures. So we're, we're talking temperatures of sometimes going below minus 100 Fahrenheit and, and sometimes even going below minus 70 degrees Celsius. Very, very cold, isn't it? They have to go over mountains through the forest. Sometimes they get attacked by moose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they have to go over rivers, sea ice. Sometimes they go through rivers when it's freezing cold. And, and they, they do all this, at least the leaders do all this, with very little sleep. So imagine trying to run at nighttime when you've only had, say, in the last five days, you've, you've had maybe four hours of sleep over a five-day period, four hours of sleep, and you're, you're running at nighttime. Some of these guys, they actually fall off their sleds. They get so tired, they, they whoop, and then the team runs away. The point is this. Are you feeling the agony? They call this the last great race. I, I can't imagine this. I can't imagine doing it. I'd love to try it one time, but I know I'm not capable. There, there's only a select few people who can do this kind of craziness. It, it's sheer agony. And then they get done, and they, and they ask themselves, why did I do that? And then they go, into, what's insanity is when you go and do it again, right? 
That's the definition of insanity, when you do the same thing twice, expecting a different outcome. It's, it's craziness, but they, it's in the blood, obviously. It's agonizing. And I use this as an example. You Hopefully you get the point. God's telling us we have to agonize for the faith. Why do we contend for the faith? Well, it's not because it's something familiar to you. It's not because it's traditional. By the way, that's the finish of the Iditarod Trail, in case you're wondering. But, but anyway, why contend for the faith? It's, it's not because it's familiar. It's not because it's tradition. It's not because I'm a conservative you have to contend for the faith because it's true. It's essential. It's what God wants you to do. And then where do we contend for the faith? Where? Where, where do you do this? Well, I contend for the faith, first of all, with myself. I contend with, for the faith with my own family. I contend amongst my friends. I contend in the church. I contend in my community. I contend for the faith amongst my workmates. And then as God gives me opportunities, I get to travel to other countries, and I contend for the faith wherever God takes me. And guess what, my friends? So should you. So should you. Who should contend for the faith? Well, don't think this is just for the pastors or the elders or the professional apologetics people. Uh, this isn't just for professors or so-called theologians. No, if you notice the text says it's for all the saints. All the saints, all the Christians are to be contending for the faith. It's your duty. So this contending might sound like a negative thing to you, agonizing. You know, we don't like to agonize strenuous work, you know, that's, that's a negative four-letter word for some people. But as we're going to look as we go through this book here in a moment, you're going to see it's actually a positive thing. It's a constructive thing. What is negative is the false teachers and their teachings. So let's move on to number two. A faith-filled life builds Christians up in the faith. A faithful life builds Christians up in the faith. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, it says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Now that word yourselves there, hopefully you notice it's a plural. Too many people think of this as singular. It's just something that I just do all by myself. In other words... The text, the biblical text, is not saying to build oneself up. He's saying you build one another up. You build each other up. <laughs> All right? Uh, God's saying there's, there isn't to be lone ranger Christians in the church. Because we together actually make up God's temple. Corinthians says so. It's a plural thing. We, plural, make up the temple of God. However, what was going on here is these ungodly teachers were dividing the church through their error, through their immoral lives, through their denying of the truth. But where to build it up? On what? What's the foundation? The most holy faith. In other words, we're to have a concern for the truth as well as unity. We're to have concern for faith as well as building each other up. They go together. Our concern for the truth should lead to unity. 
So these people who say, we're just going to throw doctrine out, uh, you know, we're not going to have creeds and all that, that sort of thing, are actually destroying the church. They're destroying unity. And they're trying to do that in the name of unity and peace, but in the process, they're destroying it. So a faith-filled life builds Christians up in the faith. Number three, a faith-filled life prays in the Spirit, according to verse 20, because this is praying in the Holy Spirit. So life with faith is marked by a Spirit-led prayer life. Now this is not some, some uh, call to some ecstatic form of prayer. We're not, we're, we're not talking about that sort of thing here, but... It's just simply a call to pray consistently in God's will and in the power of the Holy Spirit. It it doesn't have to be flashy. In fact, Jesus talks about not doing that sort of thing, so you noticed, of people. Instead, go into your prayer closets. Go into these these private places. It's It's something between you and God. Notice, according to verse 19, these false teachers do not have the Spirit. So they obviously can't be Christians, right? Because the Bible says, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have life. So we, on the other hand, we're, we're to pray as God's Spirit leads us into truth by reading His Word. That's how you know what His will is. So if you're, if you're praying according to His Word, then you know you're praying according to God's will. So let me encourage you to pray for our church. Pray according to God's will. And so if the work of the church is to prosper, then we must pray that the prosperity comes from God himself. Number four, a faith-filled life lives obediently. A faith-filled life lives obediently. Look at verse 21. It says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The life with faith here should be marked by obedience, not by rebellion. Uh, An example, well, there's several examples given here, but uh, if you look at verse 21, it's interesting there. It says, keep yourselves in God's love. Keep yourselves in God. That's the idea of of living obediently instead of rebellion. How do we do that? Well, it means to remain in this place of obedience And when you do that, then God's love is poured out on his children. Keep yourselves in God's love. So when we obey God's commands, then that that happens. Because Jesus said in John 15, verse 10, If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. So a faithful life lives obedient. And then number five, a faithful life shows mercy. Shows mercy. See, the false teachers don't care about that. They don't care about mercy. Because look at what it says in verse 22. You're to have mercy on these people who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So life with faith should be marked by mercy, not by selfishness. Selfish person doesn't care about other people. So to who should you show mercy? Well, Jude mentions two groups of people. He says to these doubters. He mentions those who are deserving of punishment. Show them mercy. These victims of the apostate teachers need mercy. 
with these people and go and read these the, the false doctrine at the Christian bookstores or they listen to the false teachers on the TV. You need to show them mercy. Your heart should break for them. Help them. Help them see the, the false teaching that they're believing. They need mercy. They need patience. They don't know who Christ is. They don't know what Christ has done. Some people doubt. They're swayed by these false teachers. They need help. How should you show mercy? Well, you need to do it with pity. You need to be... Show pity. You you need pity toward the person who's doubting, but God also says you need to show some hostility as well. You show hostility toward... Uh, or, or you need to feel hatred, in other words, toward the flesh, toward your flesh, toward their flesh. Your sin nature is, is destroying you in this world. And so, my friend, don't just stop the erosion. That's not enough. Begin building by going out, showing mercy to those who need to know God. The Bible says, with some here, be patient. With others, you explain the faith. You tell them who Jesus is, what he's done. But what does the faith-filled life look like? Well, it's marked by contending for the Christian faith, building up the saints, praying in the Spirit, living obediently, and showing mercy. Now look at your own life, my friend. Can you put a check by all five of those characteristics? Can you say that those marks mark your life. Can you say they mark my life? I want to end by looking at some questions about faith that Jude is quite helpful with. If you look at verse 1, he really answers this question, is where does faith come from? You say, well, I, I don't see all those characteristics in my life, so Am I a person of faith? Well, where does it come from? If I, if I need this faith, I want this faith, where does it come from? In verse 1, Jude says he's a servant of Jesus Christ. Faith comes from God. It's a gift. Elsewhere in Scripture it says so. It doesn't come by our good works. It comes by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. It's a gift. And so God's called us out from this world into his body, which is called the church. God the Father has also loved us, which is why he's called us. If you look at verse 1, it says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ keeps Christians. That's good news, because I can't keep myself. You can't keep yourself. So Christ keeps us. That's good news. Because his care is constant and is quite able. It's, it's sure. Something you can always rely upon. Therefore, our identity as Christians depends ultimately on God, not ourself. So where does faith come from? It comes from God. Number two, who's going to judge your faith? Who will judge your faith? Well, if you look at verse 6, it talks about these angels who didn't stay in their own position of authority. They left their proper dwelling. He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. So the answer to who's going to judge your faith is the same one as these angels. And the answer is God. See, 
God is keeping the falling angels bound with chains until judgment day. They're not greater than God. God's greater than them. And according to verse 7, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah serve as as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And then in verse 15, it says Christ is coming again to judge everyone. So if if, if we look to the future with faith, we see God as the final judge. He's the final judge, and he's a righteous judge. So let me ask you, are you ready for judgment day? It's coming, but are you ready? Well, if not, I beg you to don't wait any longer. Because judgment day is coming. You don't know when, but it's coming. And you need to be ready. So put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Third and last question is this. How do Christians keep living by faith in faithless times? Just as in Jude's day, we live in faithless times. What's going to keep us going? What, what hope do we have? Well, I love the benediction of Jude. This is awesome. This is one of the greatest benedictions in all the Bible. Look at verse 24. Don't ignore the benedictions, okay? This is powerful stuff. Look at verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy... To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. So in those two verses, there's three truths that are going to keep you going. Three truths that will help you in these faithless times. So my friend, don't give up, because this is a reality if you're a Christian. Number one... God is your keeper. Did you see that? Verse 24. God is your keeper. He keeps you from falling into soul-destroying sin. It's by His grace alone that you're saved. It's by His grace alone that you're able to even exist and do anything for Him. He's your keeper, but He's also your presenter. In other words, you're going to be presented in His glorious presence one day, and you're going to stand before God, not in your own merit. You're going to stand there without fault. You're going to stand with great joy, as it says, because of Christ's righteousness in you. In other words, God is powerful not just to keep you, but God is powerful to cleanse you. Oh, that is so comforting. Because you and I have no hope on our own. If, if I am presented to God in my own strength, in my own righteousness, my own works, I don't even want to think about that. That's not a, that's not a, a good thought to dwell on. But if I stand before God in, in Christ, that's powerful. <laughs> that is really comforting. My identity must be in Christ, because he's my presenter. But the third thing that is comforting in this benediction is that God is your Savior. God is your Savior. And this is the good news of Christmas, is it not? Christmas is all about Christ. See, about 2,000 years ago, God became a man. 
Jesus wasn't always a man. Jesus didn't always have a human nature. So he had to become a man so that he could die. But he didn't stay in the grave. See, three days later, he, he rose from the grave. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered the works of Satan. So how do you continue in faith in such faithless times? Did you notice all three of those things all had to do with God? God's your Savior, God's your presenter, and God is your keeper. It's all about God. So how can you stand in faithless times? How are our brothers and sisters in Christ enduring persecution from ISIS and others? It's because of God. So let me tell you about one of my brothers in Christ. I I recently read about my dear brother in Christ as I was reading The Voice of the Martyrs magazine. And here's a picture of him on the screen. His name is, sorry, I don't know how to say this. It's a Nigerian name. But as far as I know, it's Danjuma Shakaru. I'll just call him Dan. That's easier. He's 13 years old. He lives in Nigeria, Africa. You'll notice he's got some scars on his face. Because according to the Voice of the Martyrs magazine, his Christian village and you understand at least half of Nigeria is Christian. But anyway, his Christian village was attacked by Islamic insurgents. And during the attack, he was, he was hit on the head, and he was hit on the arm by a machete. They, as he was laying on the ground, they cut out his eye, and they left him for, to just to die. He's only a 13-year-old boy. And according to the August 2015 edition of Voice of the Martyrs, it says this, In spite of what he has suffered, Don Juma is certain that God is still in control. He has no anger toward his attackers. There is no problem, he said. I allowed God to handle everything. While the attackers stole so much from Don Juma, they could not take his joy. It is still evident on his face and in his voice. In fact, Here's what he said. I'm quoting. The joy comes from the Lord. End quote. The joy comes from the Lord. I hope you're encouraged by that. I am. Here's a young man. He's only 13 years old. Despite losing an eye, despite going through horrible sufferings, seeing many people die, he's still encouraged. He recognizes that God is still on his throne, that God is still in control. He is sovereign, and and somehow God is is going to use this suffering for his glory and his good. That's why God does everything he does. Do we believe that, though? Do we? Do you understand the joy of the Lord? Is it your strength? Is the joy of the Lord your strength? It can be and should be. May God's grace enable us to understand this and live it out. Let's pray.